Welcome to the inaugural episode of What the Mel. What the Mel is powered by Proximity International, and it's a space for in-depth but also informal and honest discussions on all things monitoring, evaluation, and learning for humanitarian aid and development. My name is Ezra Carmel. I'm based out of Proximity International's Innovation Lab. And before that, I've worked across a fairly wide range of research, funding, and programmatic positions in international development. And I'm joined by Richard Harrison, who's a brilliant Mel nerd who has decades of experience in research in M&E and is essentially my go-to person for anything, well, anything that makes me ask what the Mel, uh, which means I end up pestering him quite a bit. Richard, would you like to tell us a bit more about your background? Sure. Thank you, Ezra. And I'm over the moon to be joining you today. Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a Melster, uh, indeed a male nerd. Uh, I've been doing it for, I guess, more than a quarter of a century. Uh, I'm getting on. I, I started off in, in research, really, as a, as a qualitative researcher. I actually worked in market research, so, so doing qualitative, quantitative research for, for big brands, uh, living in Asia, actually. And then I felt like I wasn't really contributing much to the world. So I, wanted, I went into social research for, for an INGO and then got into real mail, uh, I don't know, like eight, 10 years ago. So log frames, series of change, all that jazz. And uh, yeah, thank you for being my therapist because I, th- I feel like in that time <laughs> I've, got, I've got so much, uh, you know, it's been such a roller coaster, but also a sort of wonderful journey, a privilege I feel to be in this industry that I'm just, you know, I'm just really happy to have a chance to, to, to you know, talk about this stuff uh, with you and the, and the guests we'll have on uh, in the months to come. Well, hopefully this is a therapeutic or maybe cathartic process, not, not just for us, <laughs> yeah, but for yeah. anyone listening who, who I guess is also confronted with these sort of what the mail questions. Right. Um, now today, uh, we're going to talk about some of the different faces or different settings of mail. Um, as a way to sort of connect some of the pieces that make up that that quite complicated, I think, Mel world. Um, but before we jump into that, and because this is our very first podcast, um, it might be good to say a little bit about, you know, what we want the podcast to be and, yeah. and what we want listeners to, to take away from it. Yeah, yeah. And also, I guess because this is a Mel podcast, maybe we can kind of approach this from, from something reflecting a, a results framework. So, Rich, um, I guess... What do you expect will be the output of the episodes? Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. So, I mean, obviously, we're going <laughs> to output specifically going to be, you know, a whole series of podcasts that we hope will be <laughs> engaging, you know, uh, somewhat informal. But I think we also, you know, we, you know, look, for me, uh, I hope that we can have on a series of guests, I'm sure we will, from, from around the world who sit in different spaces on the m and research spectrum who have different views, um, you know, who can, you know, will be able to show to each other and our audience, you know, the many different settings and reasons why uh, monitoring, evaluation, learning are undertaken. Uh, yeah, how about you? Yeah, I mean, I'm glad we're sort of on the, the same page. That's a good start for <laughs> a good baseline for this uh for this podcast and i guess i mean i am hoping that we get to to delve in pretty deep into a topic each each episode and sort of at least come out with a lay of of the land for sort of a a current discussion within the mel world which will hopefully be interesting not only to mel people or people who have mel in their job titles 
but also for people that are kind of work adjacent to Mel, whether they use Mel in program delivery or they contract Mel or, or, or Mel consultants, um, or maybe are working even in business development and, you know, have to write theories of change or bring on guests with, with different backgrounds who can speak to some of these different, different kinds of Mel work. So, I, I mean, I hope that's, uh, people come away from each episode with, with a better understanding of a new topic or at least familiarity with the discussions that are happening around that topic. Yeah. Yeah. So I was biting my tongue there, like just, <laughs> this is a, our first male moment, just limiting myself to outputs, <laughs> because, you know, as in right, what right. we do. Right. I, I don't know, but if it's outcomes and, and, and impact being a real metal geek, you know, what we want to change, you know, I, I guess I really, I really hope to sort of demystify Mel, I've, I've worked with so many great people um, who are maybe program people or senior people and shouldn't have to really go through the pain of knowing everything about the technical details. And, you know, uh, whether we're talking about somebody who's working for a donor or an INGO or CSO or private sector implementer, you know, I think a lot of people are doing great work that isn't necessarily core Mel or research. And I guess I really hope that we can... Um, you know, with these light touch, maybe occasionally lighthearted moments, help them to have keen insights and just increase their confidence and their, their ability to sort of cut through some of the haze and, and just feel they can triangulate and, and really understand, you know, what this is all about. Um, so, yeah, very excited to, to get going. Well, great. That makes me excited for coming discussions as well. Right? Yeah. So let's, let's get going and jump into what we wanted to discuss today. And that's the, the different faces or, or maybe it's even settings or spaces of Mel. I guess Mel is a fairly wide encompassing world. And I think it's also a bit stovepiped. I don't think it's always evident what different kinds of work there is in the space mm -hmm. and how those different kinds of work or those different stovepipes kind of fit together. Yeah and how maybe they affect one another as well. Yeah. So among these different faces or different settings, where do you think it's best to start, Rich? Yeah, so I think I'm really happy we chose this because it gives us carte blanche today to just sort of uh, cherry pick from the spectrum of, of what Mel is. And, and, you know, you have your experience, I have my experience. You know, I'm sure and I hope that the people listening to us will have different yeah. experiences. And, you know, I've chosen a, a handful of like moments that I you know, try and bring to life with you and, and we'll kick them around today. But for others, you know, it'll be it'll be different. And, um, you know, you and I come more from, a you know, a conflict, fragile states background and particularly for people who are, uh, are less in that space that might be different. But mm -hmm. the first one that came to mind the first setting that came to mind was a, a room with half a dozen, dozen people in it. And on the wall is a load of post-it notes. Right. And I wanted to talk about this one first because this is not about data. This is not about, yeah. you know, um, having people working around spreadsheets and, and questionnaires that look kind of dull or you know just like you know judging partners or whatever mel has also a vivid visceral space a colorful space which is where it touches design right the design of program so the 
the key phrase here would be theories of change. Right. You know, we use that term and in the, in the months to come, I guess we'll probably have a show on that as well as results frameworks or log frames. But in this moment, and, and I'm recalling being in, um, in, in an embassy in Nigeria doing this, you have maybe a couple of days or a whole week where you're working with senior people, good people, well-informed people who know about a program, but now maybe reinventing a new one. Right. And, you know, there is no rule book for this. This has to be a synthesis of great minds. It has to have a facilitator. It has to happen in a human way. You know, online, there are all sorts of tools now like Miro or what have you to, to do this, even collaboratively during COVID. I've done a few of these uh, online. But, you know, often it comes down to one or two people, um, be it from a sort of third party contractor or, or someone from within the embassy or within the NGO, standing up, uh, planning their day and bringing everyone together and going through a certain theory of change process. And, you know, we can get into that. We can talk about that maybe, you know, in detail another day. But it's just, you know, what I love about those moments is the fact that, you know, well, first of all, how seminal these moments are and how important these are that people are there, are prepared. This is the one shot really at getting the next year or three or five years right. And so this is not about monitoring or valuation in, again, in the sort of judgmental sense. It's about an upward looking, outward looking creative process that is designed to underpin everything that will be done in the years to come. And it's very exciting, right? And, and I don't know if you've ever been through one of these but, you know, I know you've worked on theories of change, uh, you know, which, of course, happens before the results framework. And so, yeah, this is what I want to start with, just just to just to sort of stress that, you know, Mel also has a creative edge. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely seen some some positive processes that managed to get some sort of creativity and collaboration. But I think more often I've probably seen this from the business development side where where someone is, you know, designing a theory of change or a log frame usually alone or maybe sending back and forth emails to a couple of other people. And, and I guess most importantly, there's a fairly significant time constraint, you know, time pressure to get it out. Yeah. And maybe there's only time to, to make a few phone calls to people in country um, or people who've worked there, or I guess best case scenario, you get out there for a short trip. <laughs> so now I guess you've got me kind of wondering if, if you could share maybe an experience of of this sort of design mill being done really well, where it's a sort of positive, collaborative, creative process? Yeah, I mean, I I had an experience uh, working with an INGO where the INGO was quite new to all this. And, you know, I had in my head certain practices for making a theory of change and, you know, had written documents about how to do it and could have unleashed that. But basically, I was in a room with a, with a lot of people, like 15 or 20, um, for, for a week or two. Um, it was a bit unusual for that reason. But uh, over three days, you know, this, the theory of change was sort of the culmination of that. And I just knew that I needed to throw away all of those European, UK donor um, practice and just get sleeves rolled up. And we just had a bunch, we just took at a huge table and had a bunch of people in a room and we, we, we cut up paper. We were simply asking people to hand make like a craft workshop, the flow of thinking that they thought would result in good change. 
And this was my, maybe my happiest day in Mel because <laughs> you had, um, you know, it's quite enjoyable viscerally. It's, you know, it's quite nice to touch pieces of paper, rip them up, right. put them on a table, sellotape some together or, you know, have sidebar conversations. And I didn't actually have to do anything. And normally these <laughs> sessions are kind of intense because, you know, you're leading them all day. Maybe, you, you know, people are sitting watching, you know, but I think the tangibility, the, the, the ability to play, to have fun with this, to really engage is crucial. Right. And, and we forget that. Even the post-it thing is kind of a bit off because you're taking the power away, right? The wall is over there. The post-its can only be replaced once. You know, so it's really important that these moments are human. In this case, what happened was everyone started playing. And this meant, you know, I sort of literally stood back and watched. And the most junior people in the room who were liked and trusted as colleagues actually had a real voice and got to say things about how they thought the theory of change should be. And, it, and, and the country director, a super nice person, I mean, this was a wonderful team didn't feel like he had to dominate the conversation, which is often unfair on them, right? Right. Um, he was somehow also stepping back with me and, and, and watching the team just dive in. Sure, the sort of links between each piece of paper, the so-called logical chain, maybe wasn't as elegant as we might have done in other, another way, but we made a huge mural, right? That thing, we, I think we got a, I don't know, a sheet or a, put together loads of like A1 paper and we, we, we glued it on the wall. I don't know if it's still there. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think that's really important, right? That These things remain live. Right. I, would, I think in the future, you know, donors, INGOs, implementers will have walls, with like Velcro on or, or super good post-its that you can shift around. And people will literally come to work in the morning and be like, oh yeah, that's the theory of change wall. Um, you know, I feel like this, this link from here to here, us achieving that, the risk or assumption or the evidence underpinning that being likely to happen, I'm not sure. Let me write a little thing here, you know. So yeah, so, so but, but your point around the, the realness of this actually is a great segue to my second space so uh either we can jump or you know have you got any thoughts on on, on that yeah, no, yeah for sure i mean your description of that process i i guess just kind of had me thinking about about the consequences for how emini is actually operationalized during programs like yeah maybe this is the next face or you know space that you you wanted to move to but i wonder about the extent to which you know the way we design mel has consequences for those yeah. unfortunate, I guess, in some cases, male people on the project who have to actually, you know, take it and operationalize that theory of change or log frame. Yeah, I mean, I think it's changed a lot, right? I think if you took the last 20 years, I, I would have given, you know, the, the, the healthiness of the link between male and programming decision-making, I would have put it, you know, on a, it would have been like um, one of those scenes from ER where the, the <laughs> pulse is low and, and, and weak and f almost flatlining. But I, I feel like and, and over the last five, 10 years, I feel like it's soared, actually. I feel like maybe post 2008, an economic crisis, donors having to really, really rally around the idea of really relying on Mel and doing it in maybe slightly more similar ways and coming to coherent views on it. I feel like we're seeing Mel at the, at the top table. 
I think the interesting next chapter will be when we try and fuse Mel with project management, right. program management, because right now you have, you know, the Mel tools, the theory of change, the log frames, and then you have the poor project manager uh, who has to somehow build a bridge across that chasm. You know, I think in the future, someone's going to invent a way to literally attach the log frame the results framework to the project management daily reality that will be very and then and that'll be very interesting mm -hmm. but um yeah i mean uh, let me if i may like link us to the second space yeah. at, at this point and the anecdote here it does does sort of come off what we've just been discussing I, I recall a time when i was in uh africa and doing a an evaluation and I went to somewhere. It was a it was a town on on the just on the, the southern edge of the Sahara, a town where a lot of people find trucks to go across the Sahara. You know, this is a very dangerous journey, and you know, we were evaluating how this INGO was doing. And I was still in a place in my career where I hadn't visited these places enough and hadn't really seen the human reality of receiving from someone a log frame or results framework and working working with it. and I, I remember walking into this i mean sandy compound and there was one building where this this guy this ME officer was working a lovely human being and there he was literally with the results framework the log frame printed out <laughs> And I remember seeing it and discussing it with him. Of course, my job was to go through it. But, you know, what you just said just now about the amount of time people have to prepare these documents, to think through them, you know, is, is crucial. And this guy was able to express to me flaws in the indicators, flaws in the thinking, but he had no power no agency to push back on that document. You know, I, so I felt sorry for him. I felt sorry for, I mean, yeah, you could, you could have negative thoughts about the person who'd made it, but it's also the case that that person wasn't really probably resourced right. well enough easy. I mean, you've been in this situation, right? Like, and I've been in that situation. You're, you know, the truth is you are bidding for a piece of work in, in, in some cases. And you just don't have three weeks and a whole team to, uh, you know, to do that. So I don't know, what is that like for you? Like how, how have you found that experience? Yeah, I mean, I think maybe coming at this from a different perspective, you know, not from, from the Mel person trying to design the project, but you know, but from someone, for example, leading a proposal and working alongside someone else who's who's focused on Mel or or might actually be the person who who takes you know a key Mel role in during the the subsequent delivery. And, and I think in that in that situation, I've actually ended up being you know pretty frustrated with Mel people at times. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Because you know, of course, I'm trying to get a proposal across the line that will you know just get get a good score. Um. And and often the Mel person is, is really focused on, you know, pointing out problems in the indicators or, you know, suggesting indicators that maybe put us way over budget. Yeah. And so maybe it's not even always carelessness or, or, or lack of information that limits that sort of Mel effectiveness. 
but maybe even just sort of a process that demands, you know, technical or commercial competitiveness, you know, before anything else. Um, I guess I'd be, you know, interested if you've been involved in sort of pressurized BD processes. I think actually we've, we've probably been in those situations together (laughs) before. Um, But where you think, you know, there's, there's been sort of quick turnaround, um, but, but it's actually sort of resulted in a really solid MEL framework um, uh, for a project. I mean, not really, right? That's the, that's the crime of it. I mean, I could tell you some where I thought it looked great, (laughs) but that's more to do with my PowerPoint skills (laughs) than the integrity of the logic, right? Um, Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's a, there's a, there's an important point here. It's kind of an elephant in the room. And for me, it is, what is the caliber of the, and the earnestness of the thinking and expectation that is, that is um, articulated to the person doing the job? Okay, I didn't say that very well. What I, what I mean is, when you're sitting there doing a theory of change for a possible bid, and you're bidding with a host of other companies, you know, surely we should be saying to that person, this is just clearly provisional if you win this or if somehow this goes ahead we will do this properly right but i think the elephant in the room is that that moment doesn't really come what happens is that when you win Mm -hmm. that theory of change is suddenly seen in a different light it's not an earnest moment it's suddenly the theory of change the putative theory of change you know i think that uh, it's on donors, really, or decision makers could be an INGO to talking to a, a, a downstream partner to really, you know, take a breath and say, hey, you know, you've won the bid or we're going to go ahead with this. Now, let's really indulge and put a few days of desk research or, you know, throw, you know, some real reflection at this so that we move forward. Yeah. Uh, you know, with, with real confidence. Yeah, you know, and I, I guess more often than not, probably it's sent to to your lovely man in the sandy room, you know, to print out the log frame and, and start being a bit miffed by it, but not necessarily able to change it at all. And you know, maybe that person isn't even hired when uh, when the inception period's done. You know, that he might be hired after there's already been discussions and finalization of the of the log frame or of the theory of change after you know the start of contract. Yeah, and, and I. Sorry, yeah, I mean, uh, I was just going to say... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. And I think this really mirrors the whole participatory development dialogue, right? I mean, you know, we talk about implementing with the involvement of communities, you know, participatory development, but we don't really quite get there in terms of participatory mail. Right. Right. We, we, this, so this person that I visited, you know, there are thousands of these people and, you know, we all have time crunches and, you know, the senior person in the INGO or the donor or the implementer, you know, it's natural that they're sort of in a tight spot. I've got three days to do something. So they just have to do it alone. They feel they have to do it alone. But, uh, you know, also if we could somehow find a way to, remind ourselves to fire off that email to the junior person or monitoring people in an iron journey or someone who's really in the situation to say, hey, you know, we've only got a few days or a couple of weeks to do this, but we really would value 
your thoughts. You know, let's 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 map that participatory instinct that we've kind of I think internalized as a community and and somehow inject it into the sort of building of theories of change and such things. Yeah, and and I wonder, you know, I mean, I guess we're in a sense then just leaving these sorts of corrections maybe to to maybe what's another whole sort of face or space of Mel, which is the sort of the the evaluations that are later done on the project, you know, by, yeah. by maybe an external evaluator or an external uh, contractor. Yeah. And maybe that's also a part of Mel where there can be more participatory methods. And certainly, like, theoretically, a lot of those methods are much more participatory. What's your sort of experience been with, you know, coming in and doing sort of formative or yeah. summative evaluations? Is there you know, a more sort of participatory project or more sort of encompassing process that, that is undertaken at that time? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, this is the, the sort of, for me, the real, the third real space or interesting setting. And what we're talking about here is, for me, typically an INGO or NGO who has some funds to really ask the question, how are we doing? And they know that they can't do it from within their own walls, right? They're, so they're going to pay somebody uh, an independent evaluator or a company to to do an evaluation, and and typically this will be publicised, it'll be put on the internet, or donors will receive it. So, well, I mean, you know, I think this is a huge part of the industry. First of all, you know, I think there are a lot of people who um, have this as a career. Uh, it's it's uh, I tried it for a while. You know, it's 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 not really my cup of tea because you know you find yourself judging people uh, you know, a lot of the time and it just it just can become draining but you know i've seen it done really well you know a number of times there's legions of people who are fantastic at this and i think you know so much of this comes down to the ability of that evaluator or that team to balance a couple of things one is being of course you know having great human skills and being affable with people and talking to the right people but also just being able to be direct when they have to be. This is a hard job, right? You have to, you know, you have to put on a suit of armor when, when you do it. I mean, you know, nothing is perfect, right? And, and people are sensitive and you go in to do an evaluation like this and you're going to find some things that are, that are imperfect. And um, yeah, it's, it's, but it's crucial that we do these evaluations and it's cru- crucial that they are earnest and it's crucial that they bring to light things that are not going well. But it's also important that the people doing them, and I think generally they're very good at this, it's also really important that they are somehow approaching this with a sort of coaching or mentoring hat on that they're trying to bring out the best of the people they're evaluating there's also a sort of red flag red flag element right if you find something that is just awful that's happening you know you have to bang a drum about that and 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 not shy away from that but you're right it is also a creative space you know you have a choice in terms of bringing together people individually or bringing to people people together in twos and threes or the extent to which you go out to the field and talk to people and, and what kind of people um, so I guess, you know, for the people commissioning this, I'd really, you know, it strikes me always that they should pay real attention to the to the approach that the evaluators are using. Does it feel right? Does it feel creative enough? But, you know, above all, by and large, I think there's, you know, there's a, there's a lot of amazing people who, who, who do this 
um, day in, day out, and and you know, and, and, and you know, invariably they they are earnest um, and and do a great job. Yeah, I think I find this this face of Mel to be one of the most interesting. I mean, it certainly requires you know that armor, as you say, and definitely kind of highlights the importance of being a earnest and sensitive sort of evaluator. Um, I guess I also find this this part of Mel to be quite complex in the sense that there are a lot of differences in theories and approaches that, that are used for it. Um, and I know in the past we've shared diagrams with each other about different Mel techniques. And I think this face of Mel kind of ends up being used as a metonymy for all of Mel. And maybe that's because of that sort of myriad number of, of techniques or approaches that are available for these kinds of evaluations. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, from your experience, are those techniques or those approaches to Mel, are they sort of skins or clothes? And by that, I mean, are they sort of changed between evaluations, you know, sort of based on what's appropriate? Or do you see more often evaluators just kind of consistently ending up using the same approach, that sort of pet method that they've been sort of honing for, for, for years, I guess? Yeah, that's interesting. So, I mean, I think over the last two or three years, I've begun to feel that friends of mine who are also evaluators, we've almost split into two groups. The people that, you know, in their 40s and 50s now who have chosen to focus on simplicity and the people who've chosen to focus on what they think is the best emergent technical approaches. And I think you almost see two camps. And I don't know which is right. But I mean, I think that people who are commissioning these should probably be, you know, alert to that mm-hmm. and listening to their evaluators if they if they are wanting to embark on a quite specific technical approach to evaluation, you know, use some technique that by definition means that other forms of questioning won't be asked, you know, really get into that. I had a terrible bun fight um, with somebody uh, a few weeks ago where I really disagreed about the choice here uh, and it matters, right? Because ultimately our job here is to bring out the truth um, and you can argue that the truth is best earned through digging deep on a technical solution and you can argue that the truth is you know, best brought to light by casting your net wide and, and um, you know, just keeping an, an open mind and asking lots of questions thinly. And <laughs> can you hear I'm really trying really hard not to show my, show my colors on this? <laughs> yeah, I just, I just think that this is one of the things that must be difficult for people who are commissioning evaluations, right? If you haven't done a lot of mail, if you're a country director or you're a senior person and you put a tender out for evaluators, you must get all sorts of, you know, weird... Uh, it must be like the Star Wars canteen scene, all sorts of weird and wonderful kind of people coming back to you and using different words and acronyms. And of course, that's, you know, that's one of the challenges of, of, of working with Mel. I guess we've got a reputation for having too many acronyms, too much jargon. Okay, I'll just say it. Obviously, I mean, I'm on the simplicity side of things. You know, you know, I, I grew up as a qualitative researcher. I'm, you know, aware of all the you know, different forms of projecting, enabling techniques, you know, et cetera. But, you know, I, I myself feel like it's important to sort of 
um, keep things simple. But you know, of course, there are times when we have to, you know, really turn on the, uh, you know, the, the nerd side of things. Um, and and as you were discussing this sort of contracting of Mel, you got me thinking about, I guess maybe it's a, another whole side of Mel. And that's third-party monitoring. Um, mm. I know you recently wrote a, a best practice guide about TPM for the EU. So I was wondering, what are what are some of the insights that you found from researching that, and and I guess how to do it as effectively as possible? Yeah. So third-party monitoring. Wow. I mean, I, I, I imagine or almost hope that some people on listening to this, you know, the term will be you know either new or a bit mysterious for them. You know, with in the humanitarian development field, you know, we have implementers, you know, let's say often INGOs who have their own ME teams, and that's right and good. But where something is maybe, you know, in a very hard to reach place where there's no chance for the donor to, or even the, the, the INGO HQ itself to see what's going on, they may want to send someone, a third party, to, to have a good look and, and corroborate. Mm-hmm. So this, you know, uh, this industry is sort of, I, f- I feel like it's really accelerating as a part of this space. You know, it can feel to some like it's kind of an indulgence or, you know, an expensive thing. Uh, and it is, right? It's def- definitely not cheap. But of course, to, to, to donors and in principle, taxpayers by extension is, is crucial, right? Because yeah. if nobody other than the vested party, the implementer has sight of what's going on in you know, Somalia or Sudan or Bali or somewhere, then, then you know, you need to know. So, yeah, I, I was really lucky to do that work for the EU. I think it was the first time that anyone's ever spoken to all sorts of people doing this third-party monitoring and asked them how they feel. I mean, it was sort of a, <laughs> we sort of, in my head, it was kind of like a dirty secret to third-party monitoring piece of research. <laughs> I was trying to get, really understand how everyone felt about each other, you know, like, What's yeah. it like to be thirty-party monitored? What's it like to commission? What's it like to you know be an implementer? And I guess the main thing that I feel I learned on from those interviews was how actually it's in everyone's best interest to try to approach this with a coaching and mentoring positive mindset. You know, I think that the general situation here is that you've typically got a private sector company that has won, you know, a six-figure, seven-figure contract, typically for a, a donor. I mean, there are some INGO third-party monitoring contracts where, you know, they're, 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 they want to know whether their downstream partners or, or, or distant colleagues are, you know, really what's definitely happening. But by and large, these are donors commissioning big brand private sector companies to do this work. And so I feel it's kind of predictable or natural, but maybe slightly ashamed that the the starting point for some of these third party monitoring contractors, and I've been this person and I've made this mistake, is to set about these contracts feeling like, you know, the donor will want to have reports that are kind of severe, you know, that it'll be kind of, you know, happy donor and more chances of making money from the contract extending. Mm -hmm. if, If you sort of show off by writing reports that cast a light quickly on on kind of the worst stuff that's happening. Um, but I, I, you know, I was kind of relieved or happy from these interviews, particularly to hear my suspicion confirmed that donors really want this money to help 
implementers grow, right? And, I, and I, uh, my first experience of this was with Diffid. And, you know, I certainly was sort of wowed by how authentic they were in terms of genuinely wanting partners. I mean, this was in Syria to, to really learn and grow from the feedback that the teams we had in the field in Syria were giving. But I think, you know, I got to interview a lot of donors for this work and a lot of implementers. And I think implementers are getting there as well, to be fair. You know, I think it's not, you know, it's not nice to write damning reports. It's not nice. Um, I mean, it has to be done, right? If someone's doing something, you know, it doesn't happen often, mm -hmm. you know, very rarely. But if, if, if somebody is doing something that has safeguarding consequences or is just poor implementation, of course, you know, a damning report is coming your way. But I think by and large, what I really, what made me happy about that research was, was hearing that uh, I think we're creeping towards a space where a more mature setup where, you know, within the triangle almost of donors, I think of donors at the top of the triangle, you know, and sort of the third party monitoring actors, implementers, and the implementers themselves is completing that triangle. You know, I think we're creeping towards a space where the third party monitors are, are gearing up to, you know, sometimes even be nice, dare I say, you know, to sometimes <laughs> even like say, well done, yeah. right? I think it's okay to say, well done, if someone, if someone's, if someone's done that. No, I don't know if you've had much experience of, of this. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's a tendency to assume maybe that the value of being a third party monitor is to criticize, you know, monitors are hired to make sure that things are going right. Sure. But, but just as importantly, you know, they point out when things don't go right. And I think it's, you know, there's an assumption sometimes that, that finding those problems is what really makes the monitoring piece worthwhile, you know, by, by raising flags, that's why they're contracting you. Yeah. Um, but I noticed that you emphasized that sort of mentoring and coaching role for both evaluations and TPM. And it got me thinking about some of the different kinds of monitoring arrangements that, yeah. you know, that we, that we have sometimes, you know, it's TPM, but at other times we're, we're not contracted by the donor, um, you know, to monitor an implementing partner, but but the implementing partner themselves hires us as part of their consortium. Maybe we want to call this like a, an independent, independent monitoring agent rather than a, a third-party monitor. And I wonder if you've seen a, a real difference in terms of mentorship of those sorts of, uh, you know, independent monitoring consortia relationships as opposed to third-party monitoring ones. You know, have you found that the consortia relationships are, are typically more sort of collaborative and there's more of a sort of mentoring and coaching role in those sorts of in those sorts of um, arrangements? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've done I've had the fortune to, to do both. And, um, you know, my first thought is I come back to the word independence. You know, we, we talk about it. We use the word sometimes lightly, but when you've been doing this, you know, as long as I have, and, and just the older I get, the more I think about the, the importance and power of, of independence. And, and weirdly, I'm, I mean, it's as if we planned this, but I'm about to write a paper uh, for a master's on, on, on this, actually, on, on, on uh, how at a governance level to build 
independent monitoring structure into a huge consortium like that. Um, anyone right. listening is really going to think we, we fudge this, but <laughs> no, but because it actually does fascinate <laughs> me, right? But I, I think by and large, you know, actually <laughs> my thesis could be like two lines and, and, and here we go, keep the important monitoring thing as far away from the monster as possible, like cherish your independence, right? right. So I, I, you know, I feel like I remember being in a room with um, literally in a dozen with a dozen donors, one or two, 25 people, me presenting the findings for a multi-donor fund somewhere in Europe, everyone staring at me, showing the findings, and then, you know, the boss of the, the independent monitoring unit also in the room, highly invested to for me to say good things. And that was just, you know... I mean, they were good people, right? But it all—it felt like we'd slightly cross a line. It mm-hmm. felt like we—I knew that I didn't feel independent enough. Right. You have to, whether it's third-party monitoring or going back to that evaluation situation we were we were talking about. If you're really trying to get genuine feedback, you know, if if, if feedback is that really the breakfast of champions, as someone once said to me, but they used to say it too often, then then you know, really let those people be independent and 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 then you know it'll it'll pay dividends um and i understand how the the sort of independence could be important but i wonder if there's sort of a tension created between sort of the the need for independence and then the sort of hope to have that sort of mentoring coaching role on the other side is that quite a hard you know balancing act to maintain i I feel like they're at least in some sense contradictory yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they are right, and I and I think if you're in that hot seat, you know, you 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 do feel pulled from both directions. You you do feel the need to be independently earnest and truthful and solid and you know and and definitive. Um, you know, you feel like you're in a binary situation. On the other mm-hmm. hand, you know, you feel like as a human, you want to reach out, be um, warm, be complimentary. Um, and that's why I guess we have sort of, you know, different paired terms, you know, summative and formative um, and hats right. off to others, you know, academics who, you know, like think Quinn Patton. Didn't you read a book on development evaluation? I, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a few Quinn Pattons. <laughs> right. I think this reflect. <laughs> I think this reflects our personalities. I've only heard of the titles and you actually <laughs> read the books. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, like, like there's, you know, there's. It is, it's kind of a choice, right? I mean, I, I think someone asked me the other day, who are the best managers I've ever had in my life? And, and, I, and I feel like there's been a couple of people that almost from a management perspective have managed to juggle that, right? right. Have managed to A, B, you know, when I knew um, I was doing something wrong, um, you know, my manager would tell me, but they, and, and straight, right? But we could still have little moments, conversations where, you know, he or she would would say, you know, think about this, think about that. And I, and I think it's probably the same for the male world. Right. You know, we're probably learning to be um, jugglers of, 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 of those two things. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and, and I was thinking back to your, your sort of vignette of, of, you know, sitting in front of the donors and, and the sort of 
person that's contracting the 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 third party monitoring and you know that was getting me thinking that maybe you know that's also maybe an, an, another face of the mel world although maybe not you know directly um you know a mel job or space or 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 face but somehow mel adjacent you know someone who contracts mel or engages with mel without it necessarily being sort of in their in their tor and you know i wonder if you've had much contact with those sorts of people who who have to you know sit in the star wars canteen and pick among the mel monsters and the different sorts of options and yeah 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 and how that sort of translates into into the outputs that you're going to get from the you know the other faces of mel that we've been talking about yeah yeah so for me this is the last big you know space of mel that, that i really felt i wanted to talk about and and in a way it's the most important to me you know i recently i've been working this space working mm. with some wonderful people you know my 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 boss is a very senior um person in this space who you know who's spent their life you know implementing and you know making sure that programs are strong and just shouldn't have to worry about the you know and can't be expected to have in their mind you know sort of decades of geekery and you know and sort of <laughs> translate or have in, in translated to them you know what's really going on right, right. they deserve to have it laid out for them in in plain speak and in many ways you know the log frame is intended to do that right it's it, it's it, it it's it's where the rubber hits the road and you can put a log frame in the front of someone and and and, and say this is where all the truth lies and and you know these people uh, you know are generally really smart really productive really efficient and and can absorb huge amounts of information but they still know that you know say a log frame or a results framework it's very much an iceberg situation where if you just look at the document and look at what's in it there's there's a whole you know 70 percent of what's really going on is below the waterline so they need to have teams around them that are really working conscientiously every day on making sure they're measuring the right things, making sure they're, they're measuring them uh, appropriately, their partners are doing so. And it's it's kind of the hardest job. And they're, they're kind of a ladder, right? So so above Mel, you have, you have the senior um, sort of managers, decision makers, either in the INGO or the donor side, you know, the, the people that I, you know, really want to help demystify Mel with this podcast. But then if you keep going up, you know, there's another couple of layers there to ministers and, and, and foreign secretaries or whoever, mm. or in an INGO, when you get up right to that level, this is why I find slightly fascinating. You're talking about um, a different currency of thinking. So if you're a minister or, or a foreign secretary, the way you want to hear about, listen, defend yourself in terms of the data on how things are going in terms of aid, you know, you're, you're, you're linking now to the media. Right, you're linking now to um, how the media talks about uh, aid. You know, I've been. I remember one day I was literally in on a Monday morning. I was sitting working in Diffid when on the Sunday um, the Daily Mail had run a sort of once in a generation pointless attack on 
the aid industry. Literally, the whole front page of the Sunday Mail was a bonfire with some pound notes in it or some currency in it. And the headline was something like, your money is being burned. I mean, it was hilarious, right? But I got, I'll never forget the sort of electric atmosphere inside different that because right. it's, you know, it's, it's an attack, right? And all you're trying to do is, is do good. But in, in that world, you know, you, you can't dissociate mail from the media, right? You, you, because ultimately taxpayers have the right to know how their money is being spent. I mean, you know, and this links to the whole 0.7 uh, or, right. or GDP percentage debate. You know, every country has its own sort of bar on that. But, you know, somehow I think uh, the male world needs to, of course, we work in terms of percentages, quantitative, qualitative research, etc. You know, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what we can generate. But there is a layer of the cake uh, above us, right, that just needs very simple answers. And you see, you know, donors and NGOs trying their best to somehow find a way to corral the different wavelengths and currencies of of, of, of language that we use. You know, 70% of women helped in this way, um, X percent on something else or a qualitative statement. And somehow, you know, this is part of a, a funnel that ultimately, you know, ends up, you know, close to taxpayers' needs and politicians' needs. And, and, you know, I, I don't say we ha- can or should react to that too much, but, you know, we, we, I think we need as people producing evidence to be mindful that, you know, we are part of a chain that ultimately leads back to taxpayers. And, and, and in my daily job, every day, I, I try and <laughs> literally imagine that I have a taxpayer next to me looking at what I'm doing, asking myself, does what I'm doing today, does the way I'm measuring this feel like it would appeal to a Daily Mail reader? And, 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 and I think, you know, we, we have to be mindful of that as we go about, you know, doing everyday mail. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. You know, the idea that most of what we spend our, our time doing in sort of in mail ends up below the waterline, you know, it's not that that relevant to 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 maybe the people that are contracting the mail or or especially to their sort of masters and you know i guess that really becomes um you know something we should really keep in mind when you know you're 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 sitting in your office dealing with the log frame or you're writing it you know during the 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 fundraising process having seen sort of the multiple layers of that cake what are the things that are important for, I guess, the people at the bottom of the cake to understand when trying to sort of feed back up to the top? Well, I think I think the first thing is use your voice, right? I mean, I think we go back to the, the, the sandy hut, the sort of second space that we spoke about. You know, I think if I imagine myself in a hypothetical room with like ministers and INGO heads talking about evidence, you know, I could well imagine, I could most easily imagine that, you know, the aggregated view, the best way of corralling that will only be as good as we can make it if we make sure that the opinions and views and experience of the people who are on the ground is 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 really somehow baked into that cake. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think male people, male officers, who for me are sort of the backbone of this whole thing, you know, it's hard to feel like you're an, an advocate or can push 
Um, but I think together, you know, with male teams can can do a lot together if they, you know, if they feel they can and must remain resolute in 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 maintaining their view for of of what how they should they should measure in a way what they should do. And and then another thing here is budget, right? I mean, I think that I think it's a shame that we don't yet really have a standard budget for male. There was a period when I felt like DFID and a couple of papers had us in the sort of three to five percent range and and um you know we were all sort of aiming in that space but i, th- I think we need to keep that alive too you know i think i think there's a some there's a campaign there for somebody i think we need to normalize you know just the playing field that we're on how much money we get for this 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 harks back to your earlier point around you know the bd person and then a private sector implementer and you know the time they have to do a theory of change or or whatever if donors were more on top of things in terms of insisting that their programs dedicated a, a set amount to mail, then when things start rolling, you'd have that resource. Somehow a better, deeper look at stuff would, would, would find its own way of happening. At the moment, you know, we don't really have a rock to lean on. You know, you can easily find yourself working on something where the mail element is, is, is tiny and there's someone, you know, with enough agency that they can yeah. keep it that way or enough interest. So, I think I think together as a male community, we need to work to make sure that the foundations are right, that we're not afraid to be vocal, and that we fight for enough resource to do what we do well. Well, I think that's covered all the faces of Mel that I, I, I can I can uh, imagine at this point, and I, I, it sounds like those are all the ones that you were sort of had in your head as well. So unless, you know, there's, um, there's other faces that you'd like to address, I think that's probably a good place for us to leave it today, leave our inaugural episode. Yeah. Um, and I guess, you know, on that, I'm glad that you sort of um, highlighted these faces through sort of, you know, a kind of identification of different people that are working in the spaces, because that's also, you know, the sorts of guests that we're going to have on the podcast for future episodes. So... So I look forward to, you know, bringing all those people into these conversations and sort of getting a, a wider range of perspectives as we, as we take forward this podcast and delve into issues in more, in more detail in future episodes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and let us know, right, if you're listening and you, and you, and you have a view on any of the stuff, we'd be, we'd be thrilled to hear from you. And uh, yeah, thanks, Ezra. Like, I'm super happy to have had a chance. Sorry, you can send me your therapist invoice as soon as you like. <laughs> Um, but thanks. I'm excited to, to keep doing these and, and seeing, you know, how much we can sort of lift the lid on what it's all about and just try and make it all as simple, as easy um, as possible. Yeah, no, I'm excited for this. And I think it's sort of mutual group therapy. I'm sure there's therapists out there that are cringing at that, but uh, <laughs> but hopefully that's how it works moving forward. So so thank you very much, Rich, for, for joining. And, and thank you to everyone who's who's listened yeah. in. Uh, We'll be back soon with another episode of What the Mel.